A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How did the phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen Murph and Ken here. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello, Owen. Welcome, Owen. I have one wish this Monday. That somewhere in Boston right now, Tom Brady has slung his renowned super chef, Alan Campbell, out in his ear, Mm -hmm. booted him out of the kitchen, and this very second is raiding the cupboards for the secret stash. You know what I mean? Screw you and your wilted greens, Campbell. Where's the good shit at? He's eating Nutella with a spoon. Not just Nutella, Ken. Nice big bowl of mushrooms. Oh, right, yeah. All the nightshades are going into this. That's how he throws down. Tomatoes, peppers, eggplants. What else we got here? Throw a bit of white sugar on there. What else did this guy say? Tobacco. Well, maybe some tobacco in this bowl as well. (laughs) Copious amounts of alcohol. Enough of this coconut oil nonsense. It's olive oil all the way for me, says Tom Brady today. Yeah. Bit of iodized salt. That was another thing that a chef told me he couldn't have. So it didn't work out for him. What? All the diet? The the game. He oh, was no, the game, game didn't. I don't know if it was due you, to his diet. <laughs> you didn't watch any of it, Kendall. I didn't. It was so. basically two old men getting the shit kicked out of them <laughs> for <laughs> three hours. Who was the other one? Pitt Manning. Ah, okay. Pitt right. Manning. Uh, well, he actually probably got rough. Well, no, he got roughed up less than Tom Brady. It just it looked worse because Pitt Manning looks forty nine, whereas Tom Brady. There's only eighteen months between them, but Pitt Manning looks forty nine and Tom Brady looks twenty nine. Mm. There was a side uh, issue with the offensive line of the New England Patriots, Ken. Yes. And those are the people who are supposed to protect their quarterback. The main issue with them was they didn't seem to be on the field. Right. It was, it was just a quarterback against whatever mental lads are in the defense. Mm. Uh, trying his best. A, a great quarterback, sure. Mm. Uh, a mobile quarterback. <clears throat> well, mobility might not even be his strongest suit, but a guy who only needs a split second to get that pass away. Mm. Unfortunately... He wasn't given a split second. He was being tackled by four lads every time he got the ball. It was literally like, what, there, there's a guy play, uh, called Von Miller playing uh, uh, for the Broncos. And it was literally like they had stumbled upon an amazing tactic, never before you used in American football, that you would put someone extremely fast and agile somewhere along the edges and get him to run around really fast and hit the quarterback with... Like everything he's got. This has never been tried before. Yeah, and the New England. This is basically what it looked like watching it that the Patriots were completely caught off guard by this brand new tactic. Uh, and uh, Von Miller, result, yeah, Von Miller is an interesting diet, Murph. Certainly he did back in 2013. Yeah. Oh, actually, do <laughs> tell me that you Googled the exact same thing that I did halfway through this game. 
What? Denver Broncos drugs? Von Miller drugs. Is uh, what, no, if well, that's literally what if he was. Well, no, I, I actually saw our old, I think it was our old colleague Mick McCarthy um, tweeted about it. I definitely oh, saw, I definitely right, saw, okay. saw I it did, on Twitter. I actually didn't even out. see the tweet, but I mean, yeah. that's where our head's at. I, yeah. I'm seeing someone doing something amazing Suspended in the Suspended Denver Broncos Pro Bowl linebacker Von Miller unsuccessfully attempted to corrupt the NFL's drug testing program with the help of a urine collector before each was caught in a matter that will affect how the NFL's collection testing procedures are done, league sources said. So, he... <laughs> this guy's come around testing, getting, getting the urine samples. Mm-hmm. Was, it, by all accounts, a little bit starstruck by Miller, as often people are but when they meet their heroes, meet these great sports people. Yeah. Ideally, you would prefer drug testers and collectors not mm. to be necessarily afflicted by that particular uh, issue. But uh, no money was exchanged, apparently. There was no proof of any money exchanged. But just out of the goodness of his heart, the tester decided to help out with a little bit of urine swapping here and there just to make sure everything's... Uh, it's, uh, not, no. <laughs> so do you know the uh, the net result for the player in question here, Von Miller, Ken? What was the well, result? Well, he got the initial four-week ban, the maximum ban that, there, uh, that exists in the uh, statutes for yeah. PDs in the doesn't matter how much HGH you sent to your wife even if that story stacks mm. up you're still only going to get four weeks but in this case he got because of the, the nefarious w- ways and means he tried to dodge the testers an extra two weeks on top of that <laughs> six, six weeks there yeah they really football. threw the book at him there alright <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's quite something but I, I, it is interesting how uh, our minds work on that's, mm. that's interesting uh, do you know what he washed down? What Tom Brady's washing down the meal with right now? <laughs> what on? A chocolate cookie crumble frappuccino. Oh, yeah. And why not? Well, I live a little, Tom, I say. Johnny Sexton um, is in the news today for not having a concussion, which you know, I, I normally that would not be a story. Hmm. Player does not have concussion. But I'm sure you've been following this over the last couple of days. It's best to start at the end here. The IRFU statement, mid-afternoon. This is part of an overall squad update ahead of the Six Nations the only thing instead of Sexton, out half Jonathan Sexton, who was withdrawn early on against Wasps, has passed both head injury assessment one, HIA two, and will complete HIA three tomorrow. So he passes initial one, which as far as I know, is the one that takes place straight away after the game. Then you have another one after a little after a certain amount of hours. Then you have another one. So over the next couple of days, you have a couple more tests to diagnose or not the concussion. Short and sweet from the IRFU. Some of us would have liked to hear a little bit more detail as to how this whole story unfolded and to how we all thought that there was was a concussion. Yeah, but they would argue yeah. that the relevant detail is there. Yeah, particularly if he didn't suffer a concussion, then please give us all the information in the world uh, to and explain ex- like exactly uh, what we've done to give you the diagnosis as of right now. Johnny mm. Sexton did not have a concussion. They kept it simple. Yeah. Well, yeah, simple. And yet also... As a result of that uh, extreme simplicity, quite a bit of vagueness in there as well. Leo Cullen had talked about it earlier on in the day at the Leinster press conference. So what happened was, right, Sexton went off after a clash of heads. Brendan Macken, former Leinster player, now at Wasps, it was pretty clear he's being checked out for concussion. Leinster initially tweeted during the game from the official account, injury update, Johnny failed HIA, enters return to play protocols and Marty hamstring issue with regards to Marty Moore. Leo Cullen after the game, according to some reports, there's some reports today that said Leo Cullen confirmed that Sexton failed the test, but I've actually been reading, I've been trying to get the exact quotes, uh, and a lot of the quotes that I'm seeing are actually less definitive, the ones attributed to Cullen after the game, way less definitive than him suggesting that he had failed the test. They're more along the lines of what he was saying today, which was, uh, no, he's, he's, he's been checked out and he's just going to make sure we're just going to make sure we're erring on the side of caution here. Uh, part of the issue here is that there were no Irish journalists at the game, 
which created, which is m- mad when you think about it. But as far as we know, there were no Irish journalists at the game, uh, which creates a bit of a communication vacuum. Normally, Leinster match be covered by plenty, but mm. just given uh, where other provinces were at, and particularly where Leinster were at with this match, um, it's an indictment maybe of where the Europe- European season got to. But anyway, that might explain why there seems to be conflicting accounts of what Cullen said after the game. We know for definite is that the Leinster account tweeted that. Anyway, today, Leinster press conference, press conference Leo Cullen says... He clashed heads with Brendan Macken early in the game after about eight minutes and went off and did his HIA assessment. Passed his questionnaire fine and was ready to come back uh, come back out. But the docs just erred on the side of caution. They weren't 100% happy, so they made the call at that stage. So he did not return. Now, World Rugby makes it pretty clear that the head injury assessment is only used to identify a suspected concussion. So whether he, you do or you don't pass that test in the dressing room, the idea is you do that test and if you fail that test, you definitely come off because it's a suspected concussion. Even if you don't fail that test, the doctors can say, well, no, we still don't like the look of you. As seemed to happen in this case, we're going to take you off just to be on the safe side. But the actual diagnosis is only made over the next 48 hours. And happily, those tests have come back clear. But a uh, bit of a messy situation overall. Yeah, particularly given, uh, you know, and we all know this already, the, but the, the fact that it is Johnny Sexton, he's our best player, but he's also a guy who was stood down for three months mm. because of concussion. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously the spotlight is going to be greater on on Sexton. And at this time of year, no matter what the injury is, it's a big story if Johnny Sexton gets taken off after eight minutes of a game. If it's because he's just clashed heads with a opposing player, then obviously it's going to be a huge story. Mm. So you would just, in a situation like that, really hope that everyone has their ducks in a row and that what happened is communicated to us as, as succinctly as, as possible. Yeah, I know it can annoy players when us amateur doctors out there try to diagnose concussions when we're watching games, as often happens these days. But in fairness, I th- even in commentary, I was watching, it was being it was on BT Sport and Brian Driscoll was in co-commentary and initially said, oh, he just looks like he had the wind knocked out of his sails, just needs a minute or two to recover. Then he sees the replay, or Driscoll sees the replay and says, his tone just lowers. He says, oh, he, he took one in the head. You, you can actually sense it even from O'Driscoll that everyone knows the, well, O'Driscoll more than most knows about about concussions um, and suffer concussions playing rugby. So I think it is fair enough for people to... Uh, well, it's it's, an, it's almost an impossible um, subject to talk about in anything other than cautious sort of, you know, because on the one hand, you don't want to be like, ah, he'd be fine, get up out of that and be accused of insensitivity to the possibility of, yeah. you know, of oh, an injured player. Oh, what are you what are you saying? What kind of dinosaur attitude is this? Uh, but on the other hand, neither do you want to be saying, oh, there's another concussion for Sexton. Hmm. How many can how many can Sexton really afford to take? You know what I mean? There's a kind of a, well, what can I say? Yeah, what well, George Hook was saying today in the Indo that Sexton should consider retirement, hmm. consider saving his long-term health. Which is, a, which is a point of view, probably not one that, that Sexton really likes to think about, but, you know, if, if he had been concussed again, obviously everybody knows he's been concussed many times, it's, it's a difficult one to talk about. But again, the, the point being, if you're a co-commentator talking about a live event, it's hard to see how you can really judge the tone when you see that. It's like, yeah. it's either, either he is concussed or he's not. And in either case... Oh, completely. And it's not like O'Driscoll was... He was being non-committal, but you could sense his heart sink a little bit when he's looking at going, oh, no, this could be a this could be a concussion for sex. And we'll yeah. get on to this anyway with Shane Horgan very shortly, actually. But I think we're going to get into this first, Murph. That's right. You're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? I got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh, yeah. There you are. <laughs> 
bread, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a little place called Navin. Thanks, Simon. All right, there, lads. It's time for another edition of uh, Pierce Brosnan's Emigrant Shoutouts, and this one comes from Easter Island. Neither of you been to Easter Island, have you? Haven't been to Easter Island, no. No. Uh, well, it's an extremely small island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, known mainly for one thing on, and one thing only: those statues. It was it's, the home of a great civilization which passed into extinction. It's thriving football league. You're both correct. <laughs> uh, as we're about to find out, James and Catherine, right? Dear own Ken and Murph, long-time listeners, first-time writers, after three years living in Sydney and almost as long listening to the Second Captain's podcast, the pull of home and the lure of US Murph visiting Ireland became too much, so we decided to pack up our Australian lives and take the plunge to head home for good. However, on the way, we couldn't pass up the opportunity for one last big trip to Latin America, which, uh, so while on one of the most remote islands in the world, Easter Island, Rapa Nui, the navel of the world, showing off. Our, our listeners can't help it. They do. They all yeah, like yeah, to show off. Well, that's fine. Everyone who goes on holidays or lives abroad does yeah. like to show off when they get yeah. back. Though it's true. Yeah, the the native name, of course. <laughs> yeah, shut up. Uh, we stumble across a local league game between hosts Hangaroa and visiting team Mataroa, who are based one kilometre down the road. Yes, East Round, uh, population approximately six thousand people, has a thriving football league. When we arrive just before half time. The home side were down by two, however, that quickly changed within 15 minutes of the restart after a five-goal flurry resulted in Mataroa being ahead 4-3. And that was how it finished. The match was complete with a state-of-the-art all-weather pitch, a raucous crowd, and a linesman in a high-vis t-shirt and denim cut-offs. That's mm-hmm. always a good look. Seeing this uh, live football exhibition prompted us to seek out the ancient Rapa Nui 15-man uh, Maui uh, squad on the island. Uh, see photo attached. To this day, they are still lined up for the national anthems, albeit after being reassembled by a Japanese crane company for a promotional video in the 1960s. I would like to see that ad. Uh, So this seemed like a perfect spot for Pibezo. Uh, During our tour of the island, we also came across a moe that looked uh, eerily similar to a former Millwall and Ireland player, regular contributor and bringer of mince pies. Uh, And there is a photograph attached of that one as well. So cheers, James Coffey and Catherine O'Malley. Does it look like that said former Millwall and Ireland player? Uh, No, it really (laughs) does. I I must say, if I was Richie Sadler, I'd be pretty pretty insulted by the whole thing as well, to be honest. But uh, I have diagnosed this as a subliminal longing for Orti's midweek Champions League coverage from from two people who have perhaps been away from this septic septic aisle for a little too long so come home before these flights of fancy hurt you any further James and Catherine Shane Horgan is ready to go Shane Lencer initially say Johnny Sexton failed the HIA that was tweeted by their on their account now Leo Cullen says he passed it and this afternoon the IRFU have confirmed that he's passed his first two tests he completes his third tomorrow does that all set your mind at ease? Well, first off, it's good news, certainly. Uh, it's what you want to hear. Johnny has been plagued by concussion um, injuries over the last 18 months, um, having to take a, a sustained period of time off uh, while he was with uh, Paris. And, you know, it's affected his form and affected um, Ireland because he, he, or sorry, affected his club because uh, he wasn't playing. And uh, I think there was no consequences with Ireland as well. So, you know, first, I think it's great to have him back. But I do think that what um, is concerning is that Leinster need to have a word with whoever's um, running their Twitter account because um, it's a very serious issue. It's one that the public takes a great deal of interest in. Um, it's serious stuff. And if um, if he hadn't, if he didn't fail HIA, which uh, you know we believe we're led to believe that he didn't, then um, there shouldn't have been a mistake um, to put that out on the Leinster Twitter account because it's too serious. It leads to 
more questions that leads to allegations of of you know potential cover-ups and it just doesn't help anyone the fact remains that he did suffer a head injury and that he was withdrawn from the match by the doctors who as Cullen says weren't 100% happy so they made the call at this stage so he did not return in in a way are we getting too bogged down in whether or not he passed that specific test or whether he answered the questions correctly i mean he still suffered a head injury and the doctors still decided to take him off well a couple of things it, it, I suppose it depends what fates you have in the HIA protocols. Uh, I don't. I'm not um, sufficiently well versed to know um, how good they are, but they are the standard ones at the moment. The ones that uh, the RFU have taken on board, and they're the ones that are used to uh, indicate whether there has been um, a head injury. So, you know, that's one side of the coin. The other is that I, you know, I think it's it's a positive move that. Um, on uh, that, that the doctors took Johnny out of the game, given that there was a non-issue of a game anyway. Not that that should make a difference necessarily, but uh, the fact that they had some concerns, given Johnny's um, you know past experience and injury profile with this kind of thing, I think it was a really smart move uh, to take him out. I don't think we should then um, you know be criticising the doctors for doing that. Um, even if it's a little bit over the, the HIA, um, I think that you know that's a positive thing. Yeah, no, no, no. I certainly, I wasn't intending to criticise the doctors in this case at all. They they definitely seem to do the right thing. But my point being that, okay, he passed the test, but the doctors still saw something, or they saw enough that they that they took him off, which almost by definition is, means that they suspected that there that there could have been a concussion and maybe this is maybe this is irrelevant now because if he's doing the test since then i mean the the world rugby says the hia does not diagnose concussion it identifies a suspected concussion and that any player who undertakes this uh, this hia then has to undertake a further clinical assessment uh, over the next couple of days so i suppose that's what he's going through at the moment well, i think you know from from what i know um f- from concussion the symptoms um can you know sometimes only manifest themselves a significant period of time after the um the initial knock so um th- whatever concerns there are about the practicalities of HIA1 and whether, you know, I know there's some discussion and some disagreement as to whether that is a useful protocol for um, for, for assessing um, concussion. Yeah. Um, if the doctors had any doubts, and, you know, I think maybe that should probably be, that's a probably more important protocol than actually the HIA1, um, that they actually, you know, if they have any doubts, any concerns at all, especially given Johnny's uh, injury profile, that, you know, they get him off. And then the, the further assessment goes on, you know, at uh, HIA 2 and 3, and you've got a better idea then or, or conclusive idea as to whether someone has um, been concussed or not. And, and it's looking like, um, you know, from, from what we've heard so far and hopefully with, with tomorrow, we'll confirm it that he hasn't uh, received a concussion. So I think, you know, fair play to the doctors for if there was any doubt, if they're not 100% happy with HIA1, then actually they have to use their own clinical judgment. And that seems to be what they've done. And, you know, it's just actually a shame that the Leicester Twitter account, you know, put that out because it puts a lot of um, doubt out there in people's minds. And, you know, you have to remember that, you know, head injuries and head knocks are a part of the game as well, unfortunately. You know, it, the people are going to take knocks. Johnny Sexton's not going to go out through the rest of his career without taking a knock. And it's just about being as 
uh, careful as you possibly can uh, with players to to make sure that they're not put in a, a dangerous position. It was interesting, yeah, and you, you mentioned that about players, and I know the narrative in the last couple of years seems to have developed to the point that there's almost an acceptance that players now understand all the dangers and that they're always going to do the right thing, they'll always go by what the doctors say, which may well be true after games if they're stood down, etc. But even as this was happening, as he was being <laughs> assessed on the field, the play suddenly went back out Sexton's direction and he jumps up and he makes another tackle and then he goes back to the doctor to get checked out a little bit further. And this isn't um, specific to Johnny Sexton, but do you buy into the idea that, that players are actually that much further along the line when it's still in the heat of battle? Or is a player still going to try his best to actually stay involved rather, rather than going off at a concussion? Well, there's two things there. There's one, you know, are you, is your... Are you um, functioning correctly when you're making a decision to necessarily say you want to stay on if you are concussed? So as much as could you make the right decision if you're concussed to say you want to go off, you mightn't be, you might have the faculty to be able to do that. Um, there's the other thing that there's some, you know, you hear it with boxers as well. Instinct just takes over, and people want to, you know, to fight on or or to tackle on. Again, that may be a consequence of the concussion. So I don't think that you can necessarily expect a concussed player to make a rational decision at that point. And that's why you have the doctors there to take that out of their hands. The, uh, the, the, we've talked about Sexton's tackling technique and all these things. And I don't know, in fairness, this one, I don't know if there's much he could have done about it, really. It was, it's a secondary tackler, really. And Mackin just sort of, the way he turned, it was looked reasonably unavoidable, the actual contact from, from that point of view. But have you, is there an argument that Sexton does have to really have a look at this now, how he can avoid these sort of contacts? Is it possible to think that way to change his technique at this stage of his career? Or is that only applicable to young players coming up now that they're taught, as John Fogarty told us on TV last year, the young players are taught differently now and hopefully they'll have different sort of techniques when they get older. Is, at 30 years of age, is it too late for Johnny to change the way he goes into contact? Well, I think he has to think about um, doing what he can without um, being an ineffective tackler uh, or feeling comfortable in his body position. But you know, one of two things is, is going to happen, or one of three things is going to happen. Um, Johnny is going to continue on with his sort of upright tackling style that he's always had. Uh, he's going to be, you know, lucky for the rest of his career and not take too many bangs and maybe have no concussive bangs and it not be a, a huge issue. Um, you know, the other option is that he continues on and he um, does take uh, concussive bangs and, and he's forced uh, to retire. Or, or thirdly, he can opt to try and change his um, his technique a little bit and limit the uh, chances uh, that he uh, or the exposures he has to potential head clashes. Um, because I think because he's so brave, because he's also the position he's in where he's got very upright runners running directly into him, um, carrying the ball uh, very chesty and often leading with their head. Um, I think it's a very difficult position to, to tackle effectively. And, um, you know, those those lower tackles are more difficult. But I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's something that he's working on or not. But um, I'd like to see Johnny Sexton play for as long as he can at the highest, very highest level and not sustain any more concussive knocks. You know, sometimes things just happen, and uh, you, there's nothing you can do about it. I do think this weekend was potentially one of them. But if you do have any opportunity to to limit 
um, severe concussive um, injuries, then I think you need to investigate that and it's worth working on. Not a great couple of days for Leinster between the record European defeat, that the, the mess that was made of the sex situation and Marty Moore now going to Wasps after all, despite interventions from Leinster to try to try to get him to reverse the decision or try to get him out of that contract. He's going there now. Is it a, in any way a good move for the player, do you think? Yeah, it could be. And I'm never too bothered, actually, when players who aren't um, starting 15 um, tend to move around and, and get a more uh, get um, some more game time. Um, I think he he was in a fight, certainly, with um, Tyg Furlong at Leinster, uh, who were both, you know, I think they're both coming to the stage where they, they're they looking to um, dethrone uh, Mike Ross, as it were. Um, and, you know, one of them was, was, was going to, uh, probably only going to win it. And I think, you know, Mike Ross is going to be there for a bit of time yet. Uh, so it really, uh, it's, it really depends on how much uh, Leinster wanted him. Um now, if if they chose to make a decision to say Marty Moore can go, and um, we can't compete with uh, the wage level that was, uh, um, you know, are indicating that they're willing to pay, um, then that's one thing. And I think you sometimes you have to make draw a line in the sand and you go, we don't think this player is worth any more than this amount. Uh, we can't afford to pay any any more than that. Now, if that was the case, then fine. But if they were trying to lowball him. They were trying to get him for less than he is worth, or they could afford to pay. Then I think that would be, you know, a, a huge mistake. And I think, you know, Leinster certainly have a, and you know, the other provinces they have a history of of uh, regretting letting players go when they could have retained their services for, you know, a few a few pound more, not insignificant sums, but certainly sums that as almost as soon as the deal was signed and the player that they didn't think would go would go, but they almost immediately regret that they didn't go that extra um, you know, sum to, to, yeah. to retain them. Yeah, it makes sense. Just a very last quick word on the news in England today that Dylan Hartley is taking over as captain. What does that tell you about the future direction of English rugby? I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think it's ideal. I think it's a poor decision. Really? Um, yeah, I really do. <clears throat> I don't think he's a, a man to lead the English team. I think uh, he's not a man. <clears throat> uh, you need your your captain to be respected throughout the uh, the team. And you know, I'm not one that overstates the importance of captains, and we've spoken about it before. But you need to have someone who carries himself in the correct manner, who's respected throughout the team, and someone who doesn't make too many mistakes and stays on the pitch the whole time. And this guy doesn't. He constantly is doing something silly. And he's a proven track record of um, making mistakes in key pressure, um, at pre-pressure times in matches and in big matches. Uh, why you'd want that person to lead your, uh, lead your country and make the big decisions, um, I don't know. Um, I think, you know, Eddie Jones, I actually really respect him as a coach. I think England have a really good shot at the Six Nations this year. But I think Eddie Jones has, I think he's been naive in some of the stuff he's done so far. Very much talking about, you know, he'd actually no respect for anything that England have done over the last while. Um, completely thrown the, the, the baby out with the bath water. He's spoken on, off the record about some players that I thought was really... Um, 
indiscreet and uh, now he's picked a captain that just isn't captain material <laughs> and uh, I think there'll be you know you have too many players looking around that change room looking at their captain going this guy is a bit of a turkey <laughs> alright can't be more definitive than that Shane thanks a million <laughs> see ya so he's almost like having a second captain in the team second captain first captain whatever Richie Sadler is here Richie how are you how are you lads how are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Okay, I think it's safe to say Shane is not a massive fan of Dylan Hartley as England <laughs> captain. So, can you outline, Murph, some of the reasons on which Hartley, I mean, uh, some of the occasions on which he's acted like a turkey? Uh, well, if, if I mean, if we're, if we're going to go making a big deal about these things, but he's 29 years old, he's amassed 54 weeks of suspension. Wow. Uh, over a year for offences including eye gouging, biting, punching, elbowing, <laughs> headbutting, and swearing at a referee. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, I mean, the. The, the lack of self-control uh, means he's missed out on the 2013 line throughout Australia. That was the swearing at a referee in a Premiership final, which is, uh, uh, and also last year's World Cup. And that's what, that, that, uh, that's basically to the point that Shane was making, that these aren't like incidences where someone's tried to get under his skin and he couldn't handle it. These are like big pressure moments in his in his career. Like he knows he's on like last chance saloon with yep. Stuart Lancaster before the World Cup last year can't help himself get sent off uh, is already named on the Lions tour to go and then playing in a premiership final where he's the captain swears at uh, Wayne Barnes and gets suspended for 12 weeks or whatever it was so I mean yeah this doesn't seem like a very smart move I kind of think Murph that a lot of people over the years have sought to wind him up I know you're saying mm. it's not always the case but Warren Gatland I don't know if you remember what he said back in 2011 oh, go on uh, so Gatland was quick to criticise the Saints hooker over confrontation with his Blues counterpart Gareth Williams at Franklin's Gardens right the players exchanged words etc etc now this is as far as I remember ahead of a Wales-England game so this is the coach of Wales talking about one of England's players mm. he was not prepared to step outside to the back of the stand with Gareth Williams when he was invited to so we will see how he fronts up against us England's line out imploded against South Africa in the autumn and a couple of weeks ago Hartley went to pieces playing for Northampton at Leicester Kiwis have been known to crack under pressure and choke so let's hope he does on February the 4th. <laughs> that, the, Dylan, the, Dylan Hartley is born in New Zealand. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, um, Rotorua, yeah. yeah. Uh, just like the, the uh, reaffirming of the date of the game there really put me in mind of Bernard Hopkins there. <laughs> yeah. It actually says Feb 4 here, yeah. but I presume that might be journalists writing oh, in certain stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a pretty interesting way for a head coach to talk. So you right. don't think he's the best man to lead England forward either? Murph, by the well, I don't, I don't know that he's idea. a uh, absolute nailed-on starter. Even mm. I mean, reading the well, he is now, you would assume. Well, yeah, reading the English newspapers over the last couple of days when it became increasingly clear that Dylan Hartley was the favourite. There's they're lining up to say that he is not playing brilliantly at the moment. Mm. That he's by no means the form uh, hooker in English rugby. So, like, the least you would expect is that, well, at least he's definitely going to get his place. I mean, he he might be a hothead, but he's de- at least he's definitely going to get on the team. I mean, if, you, if you're going to take a risk on a guy with uh, a guy who's been suspended for over a year combined, mm-hmm. 
I mean, you would have to think that the least you could say is that he's a certain starter and he's not even that. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is out now. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What did you want? I'd like to stay alive. I'd say it to you, I'd say it to you now. What are you doing down here, you shawnee man? It was a good weekend of football. We talked about the Arsenal-Chelsea game and what went wrong for Arsenal there. We talked about the uh, disappointing results for Manchester United and for Everton and also a little bit about uh, probably the game of the weekend, the Bulls 5-4 win at Norwich. All right, uh, the fresh allegations of match fixing at the Australian Open have well, the whole thing is ta- the allegations have taken over the tournament. Really, the players have had to answer. Initially, there was the BBC Buzzfeed story, right? So a lot of the players having to talk about that. Djokovic being asked about this, a specific match he was involved in in 2007. In a roundabout way, the world number one was being asked if he threw a match there, which was quite noteworthy. Another former world number one, Leighton Hewitt, uh, played his last singles match late last week. Emotional scenes with his family on court, all that kind of stuff. Then afterwards in the press conference, he went to town on a blog that had implicated him in the scandal. This blog named the 16 players they reckoned were involved in the match fixing. So he called that absurd and a farce. For anyone that tries to go any further with it, then good luck take me on with it warns Leighton Hewitt there in his uh, characteristically combative manner and now a New York Times article about a mixed doubles match played yesterday has emerged over the last day or so we are joined to talk about this by Brett Phillips in Melbourne with SEN Radio Brett thanks very much for chatting to us we're getting into the meaty part of the tournament itself but is everything still being coloured by the the scandal? Yeah, it's a big talking point, certainly, Owen, and I suppose uh, the latest revelations today about, uh, you know, a mixed doubles match yesterday here, which obviously, you know, the Tennis Integrity Unit and Tennis Australia have made a comment on it, um, and, and both players have certainly been questioned, but we don't have any other information probably on it at the moment. But look, it is a shame that I suppose that story is bubbled away and surfaced uh, with the first uh, Grand Slam of the year. Look, it hasn't stopped some great tennis here and uh, the crowds are filing into the tennis, but I suppose it's um, cast a, yeah, a little shadow over the sport, which you know, we know has been around for some time, that particular issue, but uh, been brought to light again here at uh, Melbourne Park. Yeah, it's interesting that that story came to light and that the two players involved, well, the, the one of the mixed doubles teams ha- had to feel questions about it afterwards because you would imagine this is the kind of thing that that happens, that goes on, but usually, um, it, it's just in this current climate, it ends up that it becomes a public issue and the New York Times report about it. Yeah, look, Ben Rothenberg is here, um, certainly uh, had a fair bit to say on it today, and I know the uh, Victorian police here, who I suppose are linked in with the Australian Open, um, in, in the case of any sort of incidents on or off the court, have uh, have spoken to uh, both the both the players and and certainly they've uh, made comment that um, you know there was nothing sinister in the way they lost uh, yesterday. Uh, I think Marrero was uh, uh, actually had an injury uh, going in. That that's their line, but yeah, like I suppose you know there's a lot of people who are a little bit wary of the whole situation at the moment and. Um, you know, whether it is going on, I suppose we'd be naive to think that, you know, there isn't maybe some uh, form of uh, match fixing going on. I mean, look, there's been some convictions since the Tennis Integrity Unit was formed back in 2008. I think there's been, you know, six or seven convictions, but these have been players that have been lower down 
on the tour. This stuff has never really been associated with uh, players, you know, certainly in the top 100 who are, you know, earning a decent living out of the sport. But for those who are certainly lower ranked, um, you know, when you know the ins and outs of how prize money works and the expenses of uh, a sport like tennis, you can uh, maybe see why this sort of stuff... Um, you know, could appeal to, to some people who actually make some sort of living out of the sport. Do, do you find yourself or have reporters found themselves looking at games differently since the report came out? <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, we have two young Australians, Owen here, who are massive talking points, uh, Nick Kyrgios and Bernard Tomic, and um, sometimes for the wrong reasons, to be fair to say, and the way they play at times, you, uh, you wonder uh, whether their heart's in it and they play some some games and some points that you just scratch your head and think, well, they're not playing those clearly at 100%. Um, you know, I'm certainly not casting any aspersions yeah. uh, on them directly, but, you know, that's just an example of, uh, you know, some players at times do make you one uh, when they sort of pull up a little bit short or maybe concede a set, you know, not deliberately, but uh, you can see their mind is maybe thinking ahead to the next set, so they might be not playing with that same sort of intensity to end a set. Uh, but look, you know, I suppose as a sports lover and as a sports commentator, you go along hoping that uh, you know every competitor is uh, playing at their optimum. But um, you know, we'll never know. Sometimes. Well, Leighton Hewitt, I'd say, is very much in, has always been in the opposite camp. A guy who gives uh, who gives it his all, and certainly had that image over the years. But he was dragged into it. I didn't realize this at the time that uh, apparently a blogger had linked his name to the scandal, and it it kind of took over the. His last ever singles match late last week. He was. He, he, I think did Hewitt himself bring it up? He, he said, "Listen, I'm even being linked to this. This is a disgrace." Yeah, and look, you'd never link uh, Leighton Hewitt with any of this sort of stuff. I mean, you know, I suppose we've been celebrating his 20-year career in the last uh, week, and I spoke to his father, Glyn, on our radio program here yesterday, and that's, I suppose, you know, the legacy that he has left. That every time he stepped out on the court, he gave it uh, 100%, and you knew that Leighton Hewitt wasn't always um, 100% fit in a lot of his matches that he's played. He's battled a lot of injury across his career. So uh, he's the last person that you'd be linking into any of this sort of stuff. But look, I suppose if uh, the ATP and the Tennis Integrity Unit uh, do their job properly, and that's been, I suppose, a, a bit of the criticism that's come out of Melbourne Park from some of the leading players. Are they actually doing enough? Uh, are they actually really investigating this enough to bring uh, more culprits to the table? Um, you know, I'll have to wait and see how it all unfolds. But, yeah, I wouldn't certainly have linked the Leighton Hewitt to the uh, situation. Yeah, I did want to ask, Brad, about what the players have been saying. It's interesting you do mention that there is an undercurrent there that maybe they feel more should be done. Because from what I've... Uh, certainly the high-profile players, Roger Federer seemed to be of an opinion, well, listen, if you're going to put out these reports, you've got to name names. This is all old news. This is all from 10 years ago, and it's the same names popping up. So he's, he seemed quite hostile towards the reporting by the BBC and, Bu and BuzzFeed. Obviously, Leighton Hewitt was annoyed that his own name subsequently got linked to it. Novak Djokovic had to field questions as well. Have there been any players coming out really baldly and saying, look, this is brilliant journalism. This is exactly what the sport needs. There's a problem here that needs to be weeded out. Oh, look, I think uh, the leading players have. Andy Murray, you know, was very strong here. Novak Djokovic as well. The leading players who are, I suppose, the real statesmen of the game, the people that we certainly sit and listen to, um, you know, because certainly the ATP has made the comment that they, they're they not going to go on just hearsay. They, they want to go on genuine evidence. Well, the, the players' point of view, the leading players, well, actually, is, is enough effort being made to actually go out and find that evidence? Uh, is there enough resources within the ATP's Tennis Integrity Unit to actually go out and and fix this problem. So I think that's the thing they're questioning. You know, I said in the press conference here on the first couple of days and you get told that $14 million has been pumped into this whole program. 
Um, but, you know, there's been some convictions, but there's obviously an undercurrent that there is a fair bit of this stuff going on. I mean, the interesting part that's come out of this in the last sort of 10 days is, you know, uh, the BBC and BuzzFeed and other people alleging that, you know, these are some of the leading players without them being named, which makes you, um, certainly makes you sit up and take uh, take note of that. Considering the wages that those players are earning in the game, you would think, why on earth would they get involved in this sort of stuff? So we'll wait and see. I mean, there's obviously a lot more to come out, uh, potentially, and... You know, we can speculate and um, uh, pontificate about who it might be or whether there is uh, any real leaks with this story, and there's a lot to play out with it, to be totally honest. Yeah, probably shouldn't do that pontificating on air. Uh, Brett, we might get ourselves in a bit of trouble. Just start naming names and deciding whether or not they're the guilty parties, uh, even though it might be a bit of fun. But listen, Roger Federer on the court, it's through to the quarterfinals after a straight sets win. He plays Thomas Burditch. This is Grand Slam. This will be Grand Slam match number 302 now for Roger mm. Federer. It's incredible stuff. Are people giving him a chance? I mean, for the tournament? Yeah, well, I think he would have been watching closely yesterday hoping uh, Gilles Simon was going to knock out Novak Djokovic. <laughs> yeah. I think we all feel that, uh, that Federer can't beat Djokovic at the moment. He's had the wood on, not only Federer, he's had the wood on Murray for quite some time. He's had the wood on Nadal. I mean, he's just a, a, an absolute peak of his powers. So, um, you know, for Roger to win one, you almost feel like Novak's got to exit the tournament. That was probably the best shot um, last night there was five by Gilles Simon. You know, we've seen Djokovic in Grand Slams get through maybe a five-setter in the first part of the week. And once he's done that, he's been able to go on and really power his way through. But look, Roger put on a bit of a masterclass here on RLA last night. You know, think about the you know the third seed up against the 15th seed in David Gaffan of Belgium. And he made him look like the world number 115. I mean, that's how big the gap is. So, yeah, Roger's playing pretty solid tennis. I think he's in the conversation, no doubt. And you think, gee, a couple of those Grand Slam finals last year, he wasn't that far away from uh, Novak, but, geez, he's good Djokovic. And where we sit in the bunker here, Owen, we get you know such a close-up view of how the, the players control the court. And, gee, Djokovic's uh, athleticism, his retrieving ability, great off both wings. Uh, he's just he's a complete package at the moment, and he's certainly going to take some beating again. Is there an argument that what Federer is doing, even to stay with the likes of Djokovic, even to be, as you say, in the conversation at his age and with the amount of matches he's played, that that's in some ways as powerful an achievement as all the Grand Slams that he won in his prime? No doubt. Yeah, look, I, and, and look, I think you know we're all thinking that Roger might play maybe another couple of years. I mean, he's been blessed in the sense that he hasn't really had a serious injury across his career. He's still got a great passion for the sport. He still is, is very driven to play. I mean, life has changed having children. It's an amazing job he does, actually, to have... You know, four children um, and taking them around the world. His wife, it's a fairly big entourage that follow uh, Roger Federer. But, you know, he still wants to win majors. And and I've got no doubt. I mean, look, it's always been talked about the rivalry between Djokovic and Federer. I mean, clearly there's respect, but there's not a great affection for each other. And that goes back to some incidents going back, I think, when you know Novak came onto the scene and Roger was well-established. So I think that's the thing that's driving Roger. He just loved to try and win another major and dismantle Novak Djokovic. And whilst uh, that possibility is still there, uh, that's why Roger's still playing. Isn't Brett brilliant to talk to you? Thanks so much. Pleasure. I say I'm a million percent. That is better than a hundred percent.
That was Brett Phillips of SEN Radio in Melbourne. I do need to correct myself on the Federer stat there. He's actually going for his 302nd win in mm. Grand Slam matches against Burditch. I think I said 302nd match, match but he yes. went through the 300 win barrier in the fourth round. Only the first man to do it and only four games now. If, he, if he's five games at the moment on 301, he's five games behind the overall leader. Murphy should be able to guess who it is. Uh, well, obviously, it's Martina Navratilova. It is indeed. She's on 3.06, so he'll take that over, presumably, next <laughs> next time out in the ne- in the next, we'll certainly do it this year, unless he has a very serious implosion. No, I think the the guy's all right. He's got a, he's got uh, three more first weeks of tennis grand slams yeah. to get through, so that there was be fine. There was a really good chat, actually, about Federer on the Bill Simmons podcast. Simmons had Malcolm Gladwell on. They He's on the odd time, and they were contrasting Federer with Tiger Woods in a number of ways the polar opposites of each other in terms of the power of Woods against the grace of Federer, the behaviour of Woods versus the pristine reputation of Federer. But then they got into this point, which I thought was particularly interesting. With Federer, what was great about him was his extended post-prime was so awesome. He, he, could, he, still, he yeah. could still win a major. He still win a major and was still yeah. like fighting these guys tooth and nail and, and Djokovic and Nadal. And he's like... He was not at his apex anymore, but could still hang with these guys and potentially beat them. And and some of his greatest matches happened after his prime. Whereas you look at Tiger, 2008 U.S. Open, wins it with a torn ACL. That's it. Well, we're going to come to, I think it's to your point, is that uh, maybe what will happen is that we will come to appreciate longevity far more. Because... You know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, the expectation was you were over and done in whatever sport you were in by the time you were 30. Now we have these guys like LeBron and Federer who are expanding that definition. And I think that means that we are we're revising our definition of greatness and no saying we, we care a lot more about um, how long you draw out that post-peak. Do you boys agree with that, first of all? That's not about, I'll get into Federer and specifics in a moment about his post-peak, but that it, that is an important part of deciding on the greatness of an athlete or not? Um, not for me. No? Not really. You're more um, of a George Best man, say, than a, I'm trying to think of somebody, well, a Leo Messi man, the way his career is going. Looks like there'll be longevity there. Well, Leo Messi's career already has longevity. If it was to stop today... It's a pretty good career. Yeah, it would still have been um, an unfeasibly... Uh, long and unfeasibly protracted spell of uh, incredible productivity from him. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody else has ever done that before. Uh, well, I mean, you're talking about maybe Pele and Alfredo Di Stefano sort of thing, but but as, you know... the, the Pele won World Cup Finals. He scored in World Cup Finals 12, 12 years, years apart. 12 years Tom Finney? Yeah. Um, I mean, as always, you know, let's say Lionel Messi is the first to do it under uh, laboratory <laughs> we, we, conditions. We actually just ignored your Tom Finney there, Rod. <laughs> Um, I mean, what the I just press and plumber. What I just is Tom Finney, the press and plumber. Uh, stop talking about Tom Finney. What is he now? Thirty four. Tom Finney. No, R- 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 Roger Federer. Roger Federer's thirty four, right? His last Grand Slam win was Wimbledon twenty twelve. So, just to have a closer look at this post prime period of Roger Federer. You could say that was the end of his prime, Wimbledon twenty twelve. But actually, his big years are already behind him. The ones when he'd appear in every final and win a couple of them. The last of those was in 2009. He won the French Open and Wimbledon, and he reached a final, the Australian Open and the US Open. So I think it's fair enough to say that was the end of his prime prime. Mm. It didn't help at that stage that Nadal was really hitting his straps and Djokovic was coming up pretty soon afterwards. So there's six years... By the way, um, that is the age Lionel Messi is now. 
Yeah. The, the, the age that you're saying Federer kind of stopped being at his peak. Yes, yeah, so I say the six, so from 2010, six years of what Gladwell and Simon call this post peak period. In that time, Federer's won two Grand Slams. He won the Australian Open in 2010 and that Wimbledon title I mentioned in 2012. Runner up four times, beaten semi finalist eight times. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's quite an incredible career by mm. itself. If, if, that, if, you'd never, if you just changed his name. And made a tennis player how many, who how had many, that record. How many has he won? So he's, won then? he's won two. Like that's he, as much as Andy Murray has won. Well, yeah, I've had a look at Murray Murph. That's yeah. exactly what I decided to do here. I've been uh, beavering away on this all day. Andy Murray, if we look at his peak years, 2008, when he really started hitting the big time, making Grand Slam finals, to 2016, two Grand Slam titles, runner up six times and beaten semi finalist nine times. So. The winding down part of Roger Federer's career is almost identical Andy Murray's career. to Andy Murray's career. It's amazing yeah. to think about it like that, isn't it? Well, what about um, Andre Agassi, whose post-prime was in fact his prime? What, is, what, what does Malcolm Godwell have to say about that? What does Malcolm Godwell have to say about the fact that Andre Agassi won the Australian Open in 2000, 2001 and 2003? Mm. Well, I don't know. We might have to get him on. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I think the longevity... Uh, Argument. I mean, if, if you were to ask, okay, I'm uh, 33 years old. If you were to ask anyone age between, say, 30 and 40, that's a big GA fan, right? Who's the best player you've ever seen? Best Gaelic footballer you've ever seen? I would say the winner of that poll, well, maybe maybe Colin Cooper. But a lot of people in that age record would say Morris Fitzgerald. Hmm. I was thinking both those players, one of those well, yeah. two. Okay, yeah. but, some, but Morris Fitzgerald was in your argument. Oh, yeah, yeah. Won all Ireland in 1997, scored nine points in the final against Mayo. By the time 2000 came around, he was a substitute. Now, he started his career, I think, 1988, two years, maybe three years after the end of the Kerry, the brilliant Kerry team. Basically, was, his career was getting beaten by Cork. <laughs> that was, you know, that was, that was basically his career up until 1997. So, like, I understand where people are coming from, and I would, maybe he'd be the guy that I would pick as well, but longevity you know it, it, he he was a brilliant player for all those years that he was getting beaten by his carry teams were getting beaten by Cork but well, you, achievement you mean you have to talk about achievement if that's the one game that he played and he got beaten in it every single year you can hardly say that that's he's having an amazing career no and career. I think it, when in fairness the type of sports people that they're talking that that Simmons and Gladwell are talking about are Tom Brady, mm. Peyton Manning now, these guys who've been around for donkey's years. And, gigs. Yeah. And are still I noticed the way there's more of these guys now in the last few years than there was before, which is maybe another reason why you can't really compare to previous generations of why are, why are there more people? Well, you know, because like, because of the... Better supplements, shall we say? Yeah, well, so supplements and... You know, all the stuff Jamie Vardy's using, the varying modalities of recovery that he gets to use, um, the, uh, you know, Less alkaline diet mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Not too many top sports people are doing crystal meth these days, as I guess they used to do. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that some of them probably are, right. you know, but, it, but uh, I mean, I guess he did that once or, or, you know, a couple of times or whatever. That's what, slim. That character the, slim that he hung around. <laughs> Any, if, you've got a, if you've got a friend nicknamed Slim, get rid of him straight away. Because yeah. they will end up getting you done for crystal for crystal meth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's true. You know, like I, I think it 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 factors in. I mean, if Giggs had played for ten years instead of twenty years, 
And I think Giggs is actually a very interesting one. You know, he won a BBC Sports Personality of the Year award just for hanging around long enough yeah. to win one. He he's the best example in in football or anything about this type of thing. It, it changed his entire image utterly. Yeah, yeah. in two thousand and three, two thousand and four, there were United fans applauding when he was getting taken off. Yeah, you know, and like that's that, that was just a he was on a slow fade out. Uh, in European games, you're watching him thinking. You know, I just, I, I don't know if he's got it, you know. And then he just became this mastermind, you know. But the difference was that he was now 39 and nobody could believe he was still playing. And, you know, it does, I mean, it is a phenomenal achievement. I mean, undoubtedly. Uh, but it is, it's, it's interesting how quickly or how much his reputation improved. By the time he retired, his reputation was almost back to where it was in 1992. I don't know. I think people like yourself, Ken, were... John Giles is always quite critical of you know, critical of Giggs, but was never ex- accepting of his place in the pantheon of great players. Yeah, but like, at what stage in his Man United career was he in the top, like best player three, in the Man United yeah, team? Well, when was he the be- when was he the best player in the Man United team? Like, you can make an argument that he was at no stage in his entire Man United career the best player on his own team. On his own team, <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> maybe when he was eighteen. Yeah, like yeah. well, I mean, you'd, you'd, that's the strongest argument even you could make. When he was eighteen, there's a, there was a chance, but I mean, Cantona was probably better than Peter Schmeichel. Peter Schmeichel was better than him. Yeah. I mean, that's you know, like when you think about it, like longevity alone cannot make a, uh, a great uh, career. Like, but he saw them all off in the end, and, he, and of course, he's still there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he is uh, all about longevity. The Tom Finney of the modern day. Yes, Murph. Uh, Finney was called the Preston Plumber. Just had to clarify that. Uh, d- double check that. Of course, you see a lot of plumbing around we're um, on Prenton Park. There, isn't it? Uh, making up places where Preston Plumber. Prenton Park is the Tranmere. Oh, indeed. Um, you just kept talking until you made a mistake. I knew my Tom Finney <laughs> knowledge would Deep run tail. out at some stage. Deep tail is pressing. Ah, yeah, there he was, fixing the old drains, old photos of him. I'm sounding like Jonathan Pierce in commentary now. Yeah, you know, he just starts talking about old stuff they don't that used to play, of course, the, what was it, mechanised games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, computerised games of Stan. I don't know what, what Jonathan Pierce came out with last week. But All right, we are, we're a little bit later out with this show than usual because that Johnny Sexton story was developing. So uh, apologies if you were waiting at the office or anything to download. You can make a comment about our tardiness on iTunes. They all count. Mm. It's all about interaction. The Apple people love that kind of stuff. So get involved there. Rate us, comment on the show, do whatever you want to do. In the meantime, we're going to head off for the day, I think. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks a million for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 